Well, it is a wonderful time of year to celebrate the birth of our Savior, isn't it? Wonderful to do that. Join me in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. As we do continue to worship, Savior has come, sent by the Father, come to save us from our sins. Again, turning our attention to the birth of Christ this morning. And as you do turn to Matthew chapter 2, and as we enter into this passage, I want you to consider one question. One question, and it will be the question that runs through this entire text. The question is this, how have you responded to Jesus? How have you responded to Jesus? It's a simple question on the surface. Yet it is a question every one of us must answer because eternal life hangs in the balance based upon your answer to this question. How have you responded to Jesus? Let me quote Jesus. He has said this, unless you believe that I am, unless you respond to me rightly, Jesus says, unless you respond to me in true and saving faith, unless you believe the full deity of his person rest in Christ alone, his life, his death, his resurrection, for your salvation, unless you do that, Jesus says you will die in your sins. There are only two ways to die. You can die in your sins, unforgiven, or you can die in Christ, forgiven fully by the one and only Savior. And thus, this question, how have you responded to Jesus, is a question that applies to everyone here, regardless of where you are in your spiritual walk. Maybe you're here and you're You're wondering who Jesus is. You're inquisitive. Well, this question in this text applies to you. Maybe you're here and perhaps you want nothing to do with Jesus. You are polite. Someone invited you this morning. You came. But you want nothing to do with him. Again, this question in this text applies to you. Or maybe you're here and You are someone who has made a profession of faith many years ago. In fact, you're a founding member of EBC. You made a profession many years ago. You've been here for decades. This text and this question is for you. Why? Because this is a story that will reveal the nature of our faith, the nature of our profession of Christ. How have you responded to Jesus, how have you responded to the exclusive and only Savior from sin? How have you responded to this child born, but born ultimately to redeem? Begin in verse one. Let's get started here in Matthew chapter two. Verse one, the scene is set for what follows. We read this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. This is now the time frame, the time frame. Though we don't know exactly how long after Jesus' birth, this arrival of the Magi took place, we do know that they arrived sometime after Jesus was born. This is most likely between one and two years later. 
In fact, if you drop down to verse 11, you see that Mary and Joseph and Jesus are no longer in a cave where Jesus was probably born. Jesus is not in a manger. No, they are all in a house, verse 11, in a house. So about one to two years later. The story, though, centers around a group of men. They're referred to as magi. It's a term that literally means great ones. It refers to a group of men that dated back to the 7th century B.C. In fact, according to Daniel chapter 2, the magi were a specialized group. They were a group often sought out by powerful monarchs of the ancient Near East, sought out for their advice. We see that in Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar had magi who were advisors, a part of a council. So a group of men who specialized in science and agriculture, mathematics and history, even astronomy and astrology for some, even the occult. They span the spectrum. Again, this was the group Nebuchadnezzar asked to interpret his dreams back in the book of Daniel. What we see in Daniel chapter 2, verse 13, is that Daniel was a part of this group of magi. He's included with this group. Why? Well, he was one who interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. But above all, above all, the Magi were best known throughout the land for being students of the stars, students of the stars. That is what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. This is a group that came from the Babylonian line of wise men from the east. We see that. These were men who had heard the great prophecies of Daniel. Daniel, again, was one of their own. They knew the prophecies, given many generations back. They had most likely heard the prophecies of a coming Messiah, prophecies about a coming king, prophecies about his eternal kingdom. They maybe even connected Daniel's promise of this coming king With the Numbers 24 prophecy, listen to this prophecy, Numbers 24, I see him, I see this king, but not now, he's coming. I behold him, but not near. And what will be the sign of the king's arrival? Here it is, a star, a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, one from Jacob shall have Dominion. It's that connection of the prophecies. This is why the Magi have arrived. They've seen the promised star. So they've come to worship the promised king. Look at verse 2. They refer to this king as the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. And this would have been no ordinary trip to come to see this king. Again, verse 1 notes that they came from the east. This would be about a 900-mile journey. 900 miles taking probably one year. Now, many scholars have tried to explain the supernatural star in a natural way. Some have suggested the star was the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and other constellations. Others have suggested that this was the birth of a supernova at this moment. Others see this as a kind of comet. 
But Matthew's account makes it clear this is no natural phenomenon. This was God, God at work, God supernaturally breaking into history, creating a miraculous heavenly light. Again, specific for these magi, fulfilling Numbers 24, that star will come. In fact, drop down to verse 9. Verse 9 in Matthew 2, after hearing the king, the magi went away, went their way, and the star, same star which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So after they left Herod and Jerusalem, the star that brought them to Jerusalem, the star reappears. It doesn't just shine, it leads the way, it goes before them. It leads them to Bethlehem. You can make a note in your Bible. This is the first on-star GPS system right here. I thought it was clever. I did. And then it hovers. It hovers over this place where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were. The star has a mind of its own, it seems. The star's movement is beyond all human explanation. It's not natural. And to add to this, it seems as if no one else saw this star. No one else saw it. it. Catches no one else's attention. It's very likely it was only visible to those whom the Lord allowed to see it. So you have a special star now created, special star created specifically by God to lead these magi to the one who fulfills grand Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel. In fact, look at verse two. The star is even referred to as his, the Messiah's star, special star. This is for the king. Which is why these magi come to Jerusalem. It makes sense. This is the religious capital of Israel. Again, think of Numbers 24. One from Jacob, one from Israel shall have dominion. It's the very place God promised David, a king who would rule and reign forever. So where the Davidic throne sat, come to Jerusalem, it makes sense. So these men enter the city. Verse two notes that they're asking a question. Now, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, again, they're connecting their search. They're connecting this star to the prophecy of Daniel 7, the prophecy of that all-glorious king who will ascend to a throne and receive worship. Listen to the prophecy. All peoples, nations, and men of every language. This is why the Gentiles, they're Gentiles. This is why they come. Men of every language. He will have dominion. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The star is given and that means the king has come. And literally verse two opens with the word saying or asked both of them in the present tense. They're asking this question over and over and over again. The Magi assume that everyone knew the king had been born especially those in Jerusalem, the seat of religious authority. And so they're going from house to house, street to street. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And you can imagine the scene. These were not just three wise men 
knock down your nativity at home. It's not accurate, right? Not just three wise men riding into town. Never says three. No, this is a large caravan, a large caravan carrying valuable treasures. These are exotically dressed men. They're used to being prominent among government courts. They're accompanied by soldiers and guards, other attendants. This is a huge entourage, huge. They arrive in Jerusalem again. Verse two, where is this newly born king of the Jews? Why do they want to know? For we have come to worship him. We've come to give him reverence. We've come to acknowledge his authority, his rule. So it's no surprise that their arrival causes quite a stir. Not only throughout the town, but a stir within the heart of Herod, the current king of the Jews. So that's the setting. It's a time frame that's the setting of this passage. Let's bring it back to that original question. How have you responded to Jesus? How have you responded to Jesus? Here's one possible way you might respond today. Response number one, you might respond to Jesus in outright rejection. You might respond to Jesus in outright rejection. You might respond to Jesus like King Herod responded. Look at verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The word troubled here, it's the word to be in turmoil, to be terrified, to be agitated. For Herod, there was no joy to the world when he heard this news. No, there's intense anxiety. There's personal jealousy right now. Why? Why this response within his heart? Well, because Herod knew that he was not the rightful heir to the Jewish throne. He knew that. And thus he saw this newborn child as a personal threat, a personal threat to his own power and kingdom. Herod was not Jewish. He was an Edomite, descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He had no right to sit on any Jewish throne. No right whatsoever. In fact, no doubt Herod is thinking back. 37 BC, Herod had actually allied himself with Rome to take Jerusalem by force so that he could have this throne. So when you couple this, all that history, when you couple that history, what Herod knew, and then you take a look at what the Jews are expecting They're longing for an ultimate righteous king. He knows that. The king from the line of David, look back to chapter one for a moment. This is why Matthew begins. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the king. Notice the next statement, the son of David. He has the right to sit on the throne. Herod knows all of this may have even read the kingly prophecies in Numbers 24, the star coming, the scepter coming, the prophecy of Daniel 7, and he knows there's a problem for him. In 
fact, that phrase, king of the Jews, that is unsettling for Herod. The Magi use it, but that phrase, king of the Jews, was associated with the long-expected Messiah king in the Old Testament. Look at verse four. This is why he asks the Sanhedrin in verse four, where is the Messiah? Where's the promised king? Where's the Messiah to be born? Messiah here refers to God's anointed, the king of the Jews, the rightful king, the anticipated deliverer sent by God, the fulfillment of 456 Old Testament prophecies. Magi have come and asked, where is he? Where is he? So naturally then, instead of experiencing great joy after hearing this news, Herod's pride surfaces, he's alarmed, and he knows that his rule is in jeopardy. And thus he wants to secure the throne for himself. He wants to get rid of any usurper of his reign, and by the way, he's willing to kill for it, to kill for it. This is why verse three says, when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled. And then this statement in all Jerusalem with him. The people are troubled as well. Why? Because they have seen what this maniacal, paranoid, insecure king has done in the past to secure his throne. Take a look back at the history of this king. He murdered many innocent people for that throne. He even murdered his own sons and his favorite wife because of rumored plots against him. So the people of Jerusalem now, they're afraid. His fear means death. His fear means the death of many innocent lives. And they were right. Drop down to verse 7. They were right. Upon hearing the news, verse 7, Herod decides to hatch an evil scheme Then Herod secretly, there's the paranoia now, he secretly doesn't trust anyone. He determines, more literally, he learned carefully to inquire diligently from them, from the Magi, the exact time. The exact time the star appeared. It's all about timing now. Herod wants to know how old this child is, not who he is, but how old he is. And after gathering the information, verse eight, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. Investigate this accurately. Leave no stone unturned. And when you have found him, report to me, specifically to me, only me. And this is just hypocritical humility now so that I too may come and worship him. That's an outright lie. Herod has no intentions in worshiping this small child. Now, God knows the heart of Herod. God always knows our heart. If you are here and you're rejecting Christ and you think you can hide it from people around you, you can. You cannot hide this from God. He sees the heart of everyone. We see that here. Look at verse 12. The Magi find Jesus. They're ready to leave. Verse 12, they were warned by God. This is divine protection. The world needs a savior. And if Herod succeeds in this death plot, the world will be bound in sin forever. 
So God the Father now takes action, and in a dream, he warns the Magi. He knows the heart of Herod. He knows his plans. Warns them in a dream not to return to Herod. Therefore, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Drop down to verse 13. No, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is more divine interaction. Angel says, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee. Flee for your lives. Get up, flee. Eris tense commands, do this immediately with haste. And then this remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And the word there is utterly destroy him. God knows the heart of everyone. Herod was never planning on worshiping this child. Herod's secret plot was one of execution. All comes down because he wanted no rival, no rival to his throne. And so we see even in verse 16, he will send soldiers, he will send the sword to get rid of this king. Again, knowing that Bethlehem was the place of the Messiah's birth, knowing roughly the timing of the star's appearance, but he doesn't know the exact house, the family. Verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged, and this is passive in the voice. He's lost all control now. He's been overtaken by anger. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. This is known as the slaughter of the innocent, the slaughter of the innocent by a diabolical king who is seeking to keep his throne at any cost. This is outright rejection. And what's in the heart of Herod? It's jealousy. It's pride. Now let's bring this to today. Sadly, this is how many respond to Jesus' birth even now. They respond with outright rejection for the same reason as Herod's. They rebel against Jesus' kingly rule over them. They want to be king over their life. They're unwilling to bow before the rightful king. I think a prime example would be that billboard. It was a few years ago now in Times Square. It had a picture of Santa. Santa on one side, the billboard read, keep the Mary, keep the Mary. And on the other side, there was a picture of Jesus and it said, dump the myth. It's outright rejection. For Herod, he is unwilling to turn the physical throne over to the rightful king of the Jews. But let me ask you this question. Are you willing, are you willing to turn over the throne of your heart to King Jesus now? Are you willing to bow before him? This is the nature of saving faith. The nature of saving faith is bowing before Christ as Lord. This is Romans 10. It is only if you confess Jesus as Lord, as King, it's only when you bow in submission to him, humbled by his glory, his greatness, it's only if you confess Jesus as Lord that you will be 
saved. So that's the first way you might respond to Jesus today, this season. You might go the way of Herod, respond with outright rejection. That will leave you with no hope, that will leave you with no salvation. Leads to a second way you might respond. This is response number two. And you might respond to Jesus with shallow indifference. From outright rejection now to responding to Jesus with shallow indifference. Notice verse four. After Herod heard that the Magi were traveling through the city seeking the king of the Jews, verse four, he gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So Herod calls a meeting of the minds, the greatest religious minds of that time. Calls together the chief priests, that would include the high priest. He's the one who enters into the Holy of Holies one time per year. He offers sacrifice for the people. He's the one who presided over the Jewish Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court and the Senate. It's made up of 70 key Jewish leaders. He's the leader of that band. This would have also included anyone who had formerly served as high priest in the past. This would have included the captain of the temple who ranks second to the high priest. All the influential priests, including the daily and weekly course of priests. On it goes. It's the meeting of the minds, religious minds. But notice also he calls the scribes in. This is the upper echelon of the Pharisees. These are the key scholars of the law in Israel. These are the expert witnesses. Herod's question is clear, verse four. According to the Old Testament, your area of expertise, according to that, where is the Christ? Where is the anointed one sent by God? Where is the Messiah to be born? This is the hope of all Israel. And so it's no surprise that these religious leaders, they know the answer. They know the answer. They know the scriptures. Verse 5 they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea. And how did they know that? For this is what has been written by the prophet referring to Micah chapter five. They know the scriptures, the prophecies. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders. They're quoting the prophecy. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Point is simply this, these religious leaders know the prophecy well. They know the location of Messiah's birth. Bethlehem was this insignificant town. But they know that he will be birthed there. They knew the ruler of Israel. He would be only six miles from Jerusalem. Six miles. They know his glory. They know his majesty of this coming king. They call him ruler. He's the sovereign. They call him shepherd. He would lead God's people with tender care, compassion. 
And added to this, the religious leaders also knew that this Messiah was no ordinary man. They don't quote it, but let me give you the next verse from Micah chapter five. The prophet writes this, his goings, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's deity. He's God in human flesh. It's the divine character of this promised shepherd ruler. They know all of this. So they answer Herod's question here. They know the birthplace, Bethlehem. They know the glory. He was eternal God. They even know the destiny of this child. He's the king of the Jews. But here's what's striking, striking about this group. They did absolutely nothing about it. They did absolutely nothing about it. They know the prophecy and they show no interest in its fulfillment. They just state it and they move on. In contrast to the Magi, they traveled 900 miles to see Jesus. You have now the religious leaders. They will not even travel six miles to see Jesus. Or even inquire, even inquire of the Magi. bring some application to today. It is as if these religious leaders, they were singing what we sang earlier, oh come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, but they have no desire to actually adore him. So we just sing it here today. And it sounds great, doesn't it? But we have no desire to adore this child, this savior. It's as if they're singing the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head, but they're indifferent to him as Lord. Or it's as if they're singing, which we will next week, it is the night of our dear Savior's birth, but they're unresponsive to his commands. They don't need a Savior. These religious leaders paid only lip service to God's word, only lip service. They know the facts, they know right theology, yet they are content with their lives as they were. In their mind, they do not really need this king and they do not need the savior. They only believe to the point of intellectual knowledge and that is the kind of faith that saves no one. What does James say? That's what kind of faith? Dead faith. So again, ask yourself, ask yourself, are you adoring Jesus? Or is Jesus just there, a part of your life, but again, not the ruler of your, not the Lord of your life, it's just indifference. He's the cherry on top of an already great life that you have. Now you might say there's two responses here, but this response is not as sinister as Herod's. It's not as sinister well, there's a grave warning that Matthew gives us throughout this book. The warning is this, indifference to Jesus, indifference to Jesus does not stay indifferent. Indifference does not stay indifferent. Listen to Matthew 26. Two bookends now. You have this event beginning Jesus's life here, but now Matthew 26, Jesus's life comes to an end. Now listen to verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. Watch now, the high priest, 
where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Just notice the similarities now. We're in the same location, Jerusalem, 33 years later. We find the same group that convened when Jesus was born. You have the high priest, you have the scribes, same group there. Years before, they were indifferent, they were apathetic, but now their indifference did not remain indifferent. Verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might what? Put him to death. This is very similar to Matthew chapter two. Just like Herod tried to do to Jesus in Matthew two, now they are trying to destroy him. And in their pride, they illegally pronounce Jesus guilty. Verse 66, we read this, they cry out, he deserves death. They spat in his face, they beat him with their fists, others slapped him. Again, Herod's, Herod slaughters the innocent. He was trying to kill Jesus. Now the religious leaders pronounce the innocent guilty. It's very similar, bookends to this book. It's a warning for us. It's a warning for us. It's a warning for anyone here who is indifferent to Jesus. Indifference to Christ, though it may look rather innocent on the surface, rather innocent, might not even feel right now to be a big deal. Indifference to Jesus is at its very heart, it is hatred towards Christ concealed. It's hatred concealed, it's outright rejection delayed. Indifference does not stay indifferent. And that is why you find calls to salvation over and over again, such as Hebrews 3. There's a pleading and this is a pleading now for anyone here who is indifferent, who have ne- has never bowed before Christ as Lord. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not stay where you are. Or Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 6, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, turn to Christ now. Not stay indifferent, bow before Christ in saving faith. That's the second way you might respond to Jesus. It's apathy, it's shallow indifference. Well, it leads to a third way, third way, and it's the only right way. Notice response number three. You might, and here I would add, you must. You must respond to Jesus in humble worship. You must respond to Jesus in humble worship. Why? Because this is the kind of faith that saves. This is the kind of faith that saves. That's what we see with the Magi in verse nine. While Jesus is being rejected by his own, there's a group of Gentiles from Babylon bowing in reverence before Christ the King. Verse nine, after hearing the king, they went their way and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Again, that supernatural star reappears, does not stay stationary, it moves, it leads them. 
not only the town of Bethlehem, but now to the exact house where Jesus is. And it rests above them, that house. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced. What a difference. Agitation within Herod's heart. Here, they rejoice. Again, the religious leaders, indifferent, they just don't care. Here, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Their hearts are burning now with emotion. They know God is supernaturally guiding them. They know they're getting closer. They know they're about to come face to face with the fulfillment of Numbers 24, Daniel 7, face to face with the true king of the Jews, the one who will one day rule the entire world. This is humility on their end, joyful humility. This great caravan, they're going to see someone greater than them. Again, they're the elite of the elite. They're the kingmakers. That's why Herod is so afraid. They're the kingmakers, yet they know they are going to see someone greater than them. Verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and what is their response? They fell to the ground and worshiped him. Romans 10, 9, they confess Jesus as Lord. And here you begin to see the humble worship of these men. They're powerful men, again, upper echelon in political government, yet they see this child, and please don't think of the Christmas pictures. There's no halo over Jesus' head at this moment. No halo. He's maybe six months old, maybe, maybe two years old. He looks overwhelmingly ordinary. He's a child born into a poor family. Yet still they fall to the ground. They take the posture of a subject and worshiped him. Again, a striking example of saving faith. That's the flow of Matthew 1 and 2. The word worship here literally means to fall down and lay flat. It's an outward sign of an inner reverence, an adoration. It's the expected response when you came into the presence of a kingly superior. But as you trace this word through Matthew's gospel, what you find is this is the word normally reserved for the worship of deity. Matthew 14 is an example when the apostles, Matthew 14, worshiped him, same word, worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. It's a worship of deity. This is the only appropriate response to Jesus, the only appropriate response. And notice what these great men offer this child. This is not lip service worship. This is sacrificial worship. And then opening their treasures, literally opening their treasure boxes. See this, uh, imagine the scene. They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And you know the joke, why don't they bring diapers? Right, I mean, why gold? Well, this is an act that recalls in the Old Testament what Gentile nations presented to 
the kings of Israel. They see the glory of this child. These gifts show the heart of these men toward the child, gold. It's the most precious of costly metals, the very symbol of royalty. Frankincense, a costly aromatic incense. It's a glittery gum. Comes from the bark of certain trees, but it was used in the temple. But here's the key. It was also used during certain royal processions. It's a kingly gift. Myrrh here, another type of expensive perfume. The Magi offer gifts worthy of a king. They're showing their heart. They're showing their reverence. They're showing their faith. Now, as a side note here, this is the providence of God, again, taking care of his son. These expensive gifts were what most likely sustained this poor family financially when they fled to Egypt. How are they going to survive? Here's how. Here's how these gifts. Here you have true worshipers. They visibly demonstrate genuine saving faith. Unlike the religious elite who refuse to make a six-mile journey, these men do not hesitate to take 900 mile, a 900-mile journey. And unlike Herod, they were overjoyed to humbly bow before their superior and Lord and King. They're delighted to offer Jesus their worship. Again, this is Romans 10. This is what it looks like to bow in humility and reverence. This is confessing Jesus as Lord. And what is the promise? You will be saved. It's a striking account. Serves as a microcosm of how people throughout the ages have responded to Christ. It's a microcosm of how everyone in this room today has or will respond to Jesus. Same birth, same child, yet three separate responses. So the question you must seriously consider is this. How have you, how will you respond to the God-man, Jesus Christ? Will it be in adoration and honor? Will you joyfully humble yourself before Jesus as Lord? Will you revere him above all else? Again, on the surface, this is a simple question. How have you responded to Jesus? It is the most pertinent question you will ever face. Again, not only this season, but forever. Father, we are thankful that you have sent your son and our savior. And Lord, we are thankful that your spirit right now opens eyes to see the glory of this child. Your spirit gives faith to bow before this king. That is my prayer this morning, that your spirit would be at work using your word to change hearts, open up hearts, to bow before Christ, that we would worship him all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.